Things are not always what they seem. First impressions are not always correct. Did you know that an English horn is neither English nor a horn? It's a French alto oboe. Fireflies are not flies at all, they're beetles. Silkworms are actually caterpillars, not worms. Peanuts are not actually nuts, they're legumes. And in today's world, a lead pencil contains graphite, not lead. I'm sure you can come up with other examples. Things are not always what they seem. And that's an important point to remember today as we seek to understand the parable that Miss Mabel just read for us. Jesus spoke regularly using parables, stories that use familiar people or objects to make important points. In some cases, parables are intended to teach the people who followed Jesus about the kingdom of God, which would begin at the end of the age they were in. Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, a pearl, a wheat field, a hidden treasure, and a measure of yeast mixed into flour. In other cases, parables taught about God's love or illustrated ways people should love each other. The meaning of these parables is fairly clear and easy to follow. God loves us like, his father, like a father loves his long-lost son who has returned home. We should be like the Samaritan who cared for the man beat up on the road, not like the scribe and Pharisee who saw him injured and walked by without helping. These parables challenge us and expand our understanding of God's love and God's kingdom, but they're fairly easy to interpret. But there's another set of parables, including the one we read this morning, that are much more challenging. This morning's parable of the wicked tenants is a story where things are not necessarily as they seem at first. And so we need to tread carefully as we try to make sense of it and apply it to our lives as Christians today. Before we look at the parable of the wicked tenants, it's important to understand some context. Jesus told this parable in Jerusalem during the final Passover celebration of Jesus' earthly life in the week before, between his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his arrest and crucifixion on Good Friday. Passover was a major festival for Jews of that time. Tens of thousands of people made the trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, so the city would have been full and bustling with activity. Many of the Jews who came to Jerusalem had heard about the teachings and miracles of this man called Jesus. They thronged to hear him speak and talked about him as a prophet. And this admiration for Jesus made the Jewish leaders angry and alarmed. They were afraid of an uprising during the Passover, jealous of the attention Jesus was receiving, worried about losing their power and authority to a wandering rabbi from Jerusalem, and also scared of what the crowds might do if they arrested and punished Jesus. So it was against this backdrop that Jesus told this parable. And he chose a very conspicuous location to tell it, in the temple court, a sacred space, surrounded by chief priests, Pharisees, and other Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders had just questioned the authority of Jesus to teach in the temple. 
In response, Jesus told two parables, including this one. The parable begins with a landowner who planted a vineyard and set up everything needed to care for the fruit as it grew. A fence to keep out animals, a press to extract juice to, from the grapes to make wine, and a watchtower to guard the vineyard and protect the landowner's investment. The landowner hired tenants to care for the vineyard while the grapes were growing, with an understanding that at harvest time, the tenants would give him a specific share of the fruits and keep the rest for themselves. This setup would have been typical of a vineyard in first century Judea. The landowner left town, leaving the tenants in charge. At harvest time, the landowner sent some of his slaves to collect the fruit the tenants owed to him. Again, the people listening to Jesus tell this parable would have expected this to happen. But at this point, the parable takes a shocking turn. Instead of, instead of handing over the fruit, the tenants brutally killed the slaves who came to collect. The landowner was shocked to hear this and sent even more slaves to collect his fruit. The tenants, not wanting to share the harvest, murdered this second group of slaves. So the landowner sent his son to collect, believing that surely the tenants would respect his son and hand over what was due to the landowner. But when the tenants saw the son coming, they plotted to kill the son in order to get his inheritance. They seized the son, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him too. Told you, challenging parable. <laughs> it's fair to imagine that the Jewish leaders would have been shocked to hear this parable. This brutal story of murder, up to and including the landowner's son, was not what they expected. At the end of the parable, Jesus asked the Jewish leaders what the landowner would do to the tenants when he returned to the vineyard. The answer was obvious, and the Jewish leaders gave it. The landowner should put the tenants to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who would honor the agreement and give the landowner his fruit at harvest time. It's not hard to imagine that the leaders answered Jewish in something of a gloating tone of voice. They assumed that they were the landowners and that they were victims of unscrupulous tenants and were ready to pronounce judgment. This is a tricky parable. The way we understand it depends on what we believe about its purpose. Is it a story of true, true events about disrespecting the Jewish leadership, as the leaders themselves believed? Is it an allegory with God as the landowner and the Jewish leaders as the wicked tenants who kill prophets up to and including Jesus? Was Jesus telling the story of his own imminent death? Was he threatening the Jewish leaders with the loss of their power and authority, just as they feared? The parable of the wicked tenants appears in three of the four Gospels, with slight variations in the details of the story. It has been studied, discussed, and debated for thousands of years. It also has been misunderstood and misused, both in the early church and today. People who have believed this parable is a story of substitution, that God was predicting, that Jesus was predicting that God would replace, would replace Jews with Christians as God's chosen people, have used this interpretation as a justification for anti-Semitism 
up to and including the horrors of the Holocaust. But this is not actually a story that pits Jews against Christians. Once again, context matters for this parable. Matthew's gospel was written by a Jew for Jewish Christians sometime shortly after the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple around 70 AD. Before the fall of the temple, Christianity was an offshoot of Judaism, not a separate religion. So the parable, as written in Matthew's Gospel, was not describing Christians replacing Jews as God's favored people. It was describing an ugly family feud. Jews against Jews. Jewish leaders attacking and persecuting a Jewish rabbi who was followed and beloved by many Jewish people. So if the parable is not intended to vilify Jews, and I strongly believe it's not, what meaning can we take from it? One important message is the importance of recognizing that God was doing something new. Immediately after questioning the Jewish authorities, Jesus quoted a passage from Psalm 118 when he said, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. From ancient times to today, cornerstones are a part of many building projects. The cornerstone is typically the first stone laid in a masonry foundation. It has both practical and symbolic purposes. Its practical purpose is to set the orientation of the entire building and to serve as a reference point for all other stones or bricks built upon it. The cornerstone records key information about the building, including names, dates, and dedications. In ancient times, people slaughtered an animal and placed it in the cornerstone to, to symbolize stability and strength for the building. In more recent times, people have placed time capsules or other reminders inside a cornerstone as reminders of the time the building was constructed to people who open them in the future. The cornerstone is the foundation, the starting point, and the beginning of the shape of something new. In his use of language from Psalm 118, Jesus was describing himself as the cornerstone, the one who would be rejected and killed by his own people, but would become the beginning of something new. Jesus himself is the cornerstone of the Christian faith, the one that sets our direction as Christians the foundation of what we believe and how we care for each other in, and our world in response to that belief. As we, the people of Lawrenceville First Christian Church, continue and expand our ways of connecting with the community around us, we need to always recognize the cornerstone that is Jesus the Messiah and to build a world based on the actions he modeled so clearly. Spending time and breaking bread with people whom others rejected, making sure everyone in the crowd had enough to eat, challenging the status quo when he saw people being excluded or neglected. With Jesus as our cornerstone, we have the power and the responsibility to do these things as well. And there's another important lesson to take from this parable, one that may not be as obvious on first reading. The parable reminds us that things and people are not always as they appear. Assuming that we are the ones who should or even can 
judge who is righteous and who is not and reject those who are sinners can be risky because we're often wrong. Let me tell you a modern-day story to illustrate this. Shaker Heights is a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, and coincidentally the town where my family and I lived when I was in early elementary school. A wide divided road called Shaker Boulevard goes through the town from east to west. In the middle of Shaker Boulevard is Shaker Square, and on one corner of the square is Edwin's, a popular and expensive French restaurant. But Edwin's is not just a restaurant. It's the centerpiece of Edwin's Leadership and Restaurant Institute, founded by Brandon Krostowski. Mr. Krostowski is the owner and head chef. He's also a convicted drug dealer. He served a year of probation and shortly afterward began training under a famous Detroit chef. He earned several degrees, apprenticed with well-known chefs around the country, and worked in the kitchens of famous restaurants such as Charlie Trotter's in Chicago and Le Cirque in Manhattan. But Mr. Krastowski had a bigger dream, to create a training institute for former prison inmates where they could receive culinary training, counseling, housing, life skills education, and support. The goal was to guide them through the transition out of prison and to prepare and equip them for careers in the restaurant and hospitality industry. He wrote a business plan in 2004 and began holding fundraisers and approaching private investors to make this dream a reality. Time and time again, his requests for funding were denied. Investors believed that supporting former inmates was too risky, that these people would commit additional crimes and return to prison, and that the restaurant venture would fail. But Mr. Krutowski did not give up. He cobbled together enough funds to buy and renovate the building on Shaker Square and opened the restaurant to the public in November 2013, staffed by 55 former inmates who were enrolled in the six-month training program. The Edwins program has run continuously since 2013. In 2018, Mr. Krastowski opened a second restaurant about 30 miles away that provides the same kinds of restaurant training and support this time for people in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. The story of Edwin's reminds us all to be careful about judging others. The young Brandon Krastowski may, have not, may not have looked like the most likely person to become a famous chef and run an award-winning award restaurant. The former inmates he wanted to help may have seemed like a bad risk to many of the people he approached for funding. And yet, Mr. Krastowski and the Edwins program have been wildly successful. Edwins restaurant is so popular that reservations for dinner are highly coveted and hard to come by. And since 2013, hundreds of people have graduated from Edwins. The graduates have an impressive 97% employment rate and only a 1% recidivism rate. When, he at, when asked why he dedicated so much so much to helping former inmates and people in recovery, Mr. Krastowski has said, everyone has a past and everyone deserves a future. It's a powerful lesson in giving chances and support to those who seem to have the odds stacked against them. Jesus himself modeled this for us, and it's our responsibility to follow this example. I don't know exactly what this will look like for us as a congregation, 
Do we want to become more involved in helping people who are unhoused? Should we make sandwiches and hand them out to people on the streets of Lawrenceville? How could we be more welcoming and open as a congregation to people who look different or dress differently or come from families different from our own? What would it look like if people who felt marginalized looked at Lawrenceville First Christian Church and knew they would feel safe, secure, and loved for exactly who they are when they walked through our doors? The parable of the wicked tenants points toward a new future, with Jesus the cornerstone setting the direction and serving as our reference point for spreading the good news. We are tenants in God's vineyard, with a responsibility to be good caretakers for the vineyard that God has entrusted to our care. As we grow and thrive, as we teach our children and youth about the fruits of the Spirit, as we reach out to help those in need, we are nurturing and watering the plants in that vineyard. When the time comes for the harvest, what kind of harvest will we reap? Amen.